0: This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Over the past three decades, the publishing industry has transformed completely. My next guest is a woman who's witnessed the industry's evolution firsthand as one of the biggest names in the Australian magazine world. I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Agenda's podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by Justine Cullen, former editor-in-chief of Elle Australia. She led the magazine for five years until 2018 and has just released a new book, Semi-Gloss. The book is a collection of autobiographical essays that form a hilariously candid exploration of her life, covering all things publishing, magazines and motherhood. All right, Justine. Well thank you very much for joining us. So you were the editor of Elle and you're currently the editor of Jones, but take me back to the beginning. Did you always want to work in magazines? I mean, was was working in magazines your dream job when you were younger?
1: It absolutely was. From probably when I was about seven years old, I was just an avid consumer of Dolly and Cleo and all of the magazines that were so enormous at the time. And I really never had another dream. I want I really just was intent on sitting in that editor's chair from a very, very young age. What did you like about those kind of magazines? I mean, was it the format?
0: Was it? I mean, what what was it that attracted you, if you like?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I didn't grow up in a particularly um, privileged household. And the idea of this world where there was just so much stuff was so appealing to me. And it also had a real sense of uh, you know, the girl gang aspect to it. So I would really like pour myself into these editors' letters that told the story of how the magazines were put together and and they really kind of um, it whipped up for me this world of, of this, you know, it, these very glamorous women who seem to be really smart and funny and they all seem to have a really good time at work and that was so foreign to me as someone who, you know, my mum cleaned houses for a living and and worked very unglamorous jobs to to keep food on our table. And and so the idea of getting to do something that, that just sounded so fun um, really appealed to me. And I guess it was, you know, a, a seven-year-old's dream that I never really let go of. Mm.
0: Now, it's hard to get into magazines. I used to be a magazine editor. So what was your first step in?
1: Well, I had been doing work experience for all of my high school years from from uh, probably, you know, year 10 on, I was constantly going to magazines in my school holidays and um, whenever anyone would take me, you know, I I would just sort of show up in my school uniform and pretend that I was meant to be there. And I eventually then, um, while I was doing my HSC, I was sort of mid-exams and was offered a job as the editorial coordinator on Girlfriend Magazine, um, which was, you know, funny because I was still a teenager myself. So um, to be working on this magazine that my friends still read, that I still read, and I was really interested in everything that we were talking about. And, you know, it was my life that I was seeing reflected on the pages was really fascinating time.
0: So you took the job, you finished your HSCs or you took the job or you did both?
1: I I finished my exams and I started a couple of days later. Um, And look, it it was really on the it was a, it's a very chance opportunity that I had to get that job through um, a boy that I was dating at the time, but really I had set myself up over the the years the years previously to to be able to jump at that opportunity when it came my way, and so I, I was ready. I, I obviously had you know mixed feelings about skipping uni, and and I had this intention that I would maybe do it for a couple of years and then go back to uni and then, you know, finish all my plans. But in the end, it sort of never happened because life leads to life. Mm.
0: Do you think about that in terms of university? Do you think, do you ever think about going back to it now?
1: Oh my God, I'd love to, but now I've just got too many children and (laughs) there's a lot of reality TV to watch. I'm really busy. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Um, So you get, I mean, effectively right
0: to the top being the editor of Alch, one of the sort of major brand names globally when it comes to women's magazines was the dream the reality I mean you know you thought it would be the dream job was it?
1: You know I think in many ways you know it was the dream job and I, I mean it was the very first magazine that I had ever interned at so for me I, I was very I had a very pointy dream to be the editor of that particular magazine and in so many ways, it didn't let me down at all. You know, the International L family of all the different editors from around the world, at the time that we launched, I think we were number 42 and a few launched after that. Um, but we were all very close. We collaborated really well. We were we worked together and got together a few times a year at the international shows. That part of it was everything that I imagined it to be, um, incredibly inspiring, all of these incredibly clever women um, who who worked you know, for a brand they were really passionate about and made something for women who they were really passionate about. Um, and there were so many parts of that job that are uh, everything that you think it will be when you're watching A Devil Wears Prada. Um, it, it You know, it has so many parts that are just the highest of the highs and these, you know, unbelievable experience, experiences that someone like me from the suburbs was, would have, you know, never even dreamed were out there um I think the thing that changed I mean obviously the industry um had its challenges throughout my time as an editor and that made it harder and harder for me to do the job um to do the job as well as I wanted to but I think the biggest thing for me was not so much that the job changed or wasn't what I imagined it to be but that I had changed over those 25 years since I'd first dreamed of of being in the role um So, you know, I I first imagined being the editor of Elle at 14, and I think that that dream served me well over the course of my career, but, you know, by the time I was five or six years in, I was definitely not that girl anymore, thankfully, and um, I think I sort of, you know, was rapidly learning that for women, in many ways, the game is rigged, and you get that everything that you'd really hoped for, but then you learn that maybe that's not so desirable or not so desirable for the person that you are now. Um, And I think many women come to that realisation. What
0: do you mean when you say the game is rigged for women?
1: I think we all feel that sort of pressure to take the opportunities that the women who came before us didn't have. Um, But, you know, the truth is that we might have been able to make our way into the workforce um, but there really weren't any changes in terms of the labour split in the home or the traditional caregiving duties or childcare systems or parental labor all those things that you know at Women's Agenda you talk about all the time it makes it very difficult for women to be able to work as hard as you need to at that level um, outside of the home Um, and I think that it can make it, it, it it's almost a it's a it's a game that in many ways it's really hard for women to win and for me that was I, I sort of had to recalibrate what my idea of success was at that point and think does this work for me now can I be this editor flying all around the world all the time and working as hard as I need to to be able to create something that I can be really proud of and can I have my family and can they be happy? And you know, whole food fed and all of those things that you want your children to be, um, can I manage all of that together? And I think we're only now realising probably that it's not possible always yeah. for everyone.
0: You, you're making me think, so I've got two children and I worked as a magazine editor and when you're talking about them being whole food fed, you're making me think of this time after I had I had my first baby and then second baby and then I remember being in a supermarket and there was a mum and she was buying pre-made baby food and I was mm. like oh that's your second or third child isn't it you know the first <laughs> child you feed really well second child third child you're like yeah <laughs> sure whatever
1: <laughs> so, sorry, I but <laughs> well, you know I've got four now and I can honestly say that the phrase you know raised by wolves is very appropriate for my fourth child because he is being raised by our little wolf pack in here um, I definitely don't have the energy to put into the parenting of him that I did with my first child you know where it's all flashcards and you know, trying to speak to them in a language you don't even speak yourself because you think that might be good for them and playing classical music. And and with him, I'm just like, you go, you be you, whatever whatever happens.
0: You've got four boys. Is that right?
1: I do. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. What's it like raising four boys?
1: Um, well, I don't know anything else. So I've, I've got nothing to compare it to, unfortunately, but I will say that I have really wonderful boys and particularly um, I've got two teenage boys and and then an eight-year-old and a two-year-old. And the teenagers are just a dream, you know. Raising teenagers is nothing like what I imagined, and perhaps that's because they're not girls. Because I think if I had a girl, I would have some very bad karma coming my way. Um, but you know, they're still really. I think this generation, you know, that generation of young people and teenagers, they're so incredibly evolved and open-minded, and I'm learning from them every day beyond just like TikTok I'm actually you know learning how to be a better human in the world because of them
0: yeah I asked you that actually a friend of mine she's got four boys and I asked her what it was like and she said Kate young boys are like dogs she just had sort of run them every day she goes we take them to the park in the morning and we run them and then in the evening we take them to the park and we run them again she goes that's the only way you can do with the boys I've got girls so I just found that really funny um let, let's talk a little bit about you you were at L for five years is that correct yes yes okay and i I was in my research i was reading some of the stuff you'd written about that and i read this particular phrase where you said i thought i would be one of the editors that would die there so talk to me about the end of that role what happened what decisions what were you thinking about because i think i just think it's intriguing because it was a job you always wanted it and it's a story that resonates very much with me as well you know and then at some point you have to decide to leave that dream job so what was happening at that Mm. period
1: well i think it you know it it had been, I'd been mulling over the idea of leaving or or maybe sort of um, coming to terms with the realisation that maybe I wasn't going to be wheeled in there as an 80 year old. You know, I had these dreams of Helen Gurley Brown, who was the, you know, the founding editor of US Cosmopolitan. And she kept an office in the Hearst building, I think until she died, where she would sort of, you know, come in and, and potter around. And, and I always imagined that I would keep a foot in with Elle at some point. I was so attached to that magazine. And And my identity was so caught up with it, and um, you know, it had been taking. I'd sort of been thinking about it for a couple of years and thinking maybe this doesn't work for me as as much as I always thought that it would. Um, But it took me kind of, you know, a relatively long time to get to the point of deciding that that I would leave. And really, that was about you know being offered another really interesting job and new opportunities opening up, and 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 trying to trying needing to decide at that point whether. L was heading in the direction that I wanted to be heading myself. Um, and the answer to that was no. And so I, um, I took that leap and I, I, it was really interesting. I think it was much easier for me to make the decision, even though it took a long time. It was easier for me to make the decision to, to go than um, for me to survive. In my post-L magazine life, I really, um, I really had a form of, you know, I describe it in the book as a form of PTSD. It was a sort of publishing PTSD, but also, you know, I I really um, had an identity crisis of a sort where I didn't really know who I was without that dream anymore. I didn't know how to just introduce myself without attaching myself to this title that I'd always had and what that represented to people as an international magazine. It was something that people can instantly recognise. It's not a job that needs to be explained in any way, and I didn't think that I would be as attached to that as I was. But I did I did really struggle with it for a long time. Mm.
0: Yeah, look, I really hear you. I just want to go back. Um, you, you know, you were talking there about the issues, challenges of being a working mum. Do, do you think things have changed over your time period? Do you think that if, you know what I mean, if you came into the workforce now, would it be a different experience or the same experience?
1: I think post-pandemic it is a different experience, um, or I hope so. I think we're starting to see that workplaces you know, are really evolving and um, it's almost like, you know, we had all these theories and ideas of how you could make a better workplace for women and how we could adapt a very sort of um, a male-centric view of what success and hard work looked like and what we valued. Um but we never really followed through, or nothing ever really kind of you know spurred us into making those decisions as a culture. And I think the the pandemic has has probably done that for us. And you know companies did realize how much you could get done remotely, and um, how valuable flexible working hours could be. And I think that that is you know I, I think that that can only be a good thing um, for women. I think it's it, it's just so. It's so interesting how, how we've known this for a very long time but we just haven't known how to follow through um, and then the pandemic is not you know I mean women have been more affected by the, by the pandemic and job losses you know more affected economically than men um, but the solution's not necessarily been been made for us but hopefully we'll benefit from it.
0: Mm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if you take away the issue of flexibility, let's assume we move into a more flexible workforce, if that's the sole deciding factor, you know, in terms of how women perform in careers or whether there's other kind of invisible blocks, you know what I mean, you move away one visible block, do you discover others? Um, So look, tell me me about your new role. You're currently at Jones, which is uh, published by Medium Rare. And essentially, it's the David Jones magazine. I'm doing a shortcut, but you tell me a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, um Jones is the is the fashion magazine, the sort of consumer like magazine, um part of what we do there, but actually, I you know, I am the head of content for fashion, prestige and lifestyle at, at medium rare and we have other clients as well and we make um, magazines for Priceline and we create content for other brands and um, we also do all of the you know a lot of the creative um, strategic thinking for David Jones beyond the magazine so um, the campaigns around the Mother's Day and Father's Day and Christmas and so it's really exciting because it's a I still get to hold on to the part of the the thing that I love, which is the making of a magazine, Um, the area where I feel the most comfortable, but definitely um, have been an old dog learning lots of new tricks over the last few years. And so it's, it's challenging and wonderful and exciting in many new ways.
0: Mm, and all of those things what do you think about the move to digital for both journalism and journalists if you like the creators and the consumers what's your view
1: I mean how long have you got <laughs> um look it's it's definitely in some ways I think I, I'm um a real I'm generation x but I'm definitely a millennial in how I consume my content I um am always online and um and live heavily in that space so as a consumer I really understand it and its convenience and how it can be targeted directly at you you know it does worry me in terms of the quality of content that we might be getting um in terms of as an industry how we're still challenged in how to monetize it and um and haven't quite kind of I, I don't think have necessarily got there yet so you know obviously that has a trickle down effect in terms of the quality of content that gets produced. Um, but, you know, in general, I think it's been such an interesting transition, um, particularly in my in my area, which is sort of fashion and beauty, to watch how swiftly that move kind of happened and how the publishing companies didn't necessarily know how to keep up, um, you know, a real pity in many ways. And I think what we saw last year with the closure of so many magazines, um, you know, was just evidence of that.
0: Mm. Uh, so I'm a magazine junkie, always have been, always will be. I mean, I love I you, digital love people as well. like you. But yeah, I mean, I mourned when you know every time a great magazine passes. As I say, I say, oh my goodness, there it goes again. It's such a beautiful product, the magazine, you know, and such a tangible product. But you know, things change. I, you know, I think the point that you say that really stays with me. And the thing that concerns me most is 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 about quality information. Um, and when the digital move happened, and, you know, I've I sort of worked in media for about 20 years before I left it, you know, I remember saying the real issue, I think, is that information becomes a commodity and those that can afford to buy good information will get good information and those mm. that can't, will not Whereas before that uh, advertising led model underwrote the broad mm. access of good information to the most amount of people. Um, And that really impacts on people's decision making, you know, good information becomes something that, you know, people who can afford it have and, you know, everyone else. Gets what's left over. Tell me about fashion, because I can tell in your voice that you love fashion too, and I love fashion as well, so it's really exciting. Um, what uh, I'm thinking about fashion as being the storyteller, so sorry, let me give you a bit of context. Uh, Towards, as we started to come out of the pandemic, I was looking at fashion to see what fashion was saying, because I always think fashion tries to tell us a bit about the future, and it was lovely because it was really optimistic. It was all pinks and lemon yellows and things like that. Um, What do you think of the role of, of fashion, you know, in a broader... Uh, sense for for us as consumers
1: I mean you know the role of fashion in society has always been you know well fashion has always sort of been um very clearly reflected in society and 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 it's it plays a role in telling the story of the times that you're living in and I think there's an added kind of layer to that through this last you know 24 months because um there's an economic and uh, you know commercial ramifications in what everybody was doing for the very first time and you know i think fashion really needed a wake up call in many ways you know it was it was an industry that was based on this constant newness that wasn't really working for anyone you know it wasn't working for the designers who were creatively completely exhausted the retailers who were just in this constant cycle of markdowns and no one could kind of catch up to that you know there's this all the stock clearing Um, a customer who was kind of you know unable to keep up a lot of the time Um, obviously it didn't work for the planet Um, there were lots of of things that were kind of wrong with the model that fashion was within um, prior to prior to the pandemic and I really love that throughout the past 12 months it, it really enabled the industry to kind of take a pause reset um, you know, a lot of designers, for example, a lot of Australians designers just skipped a couple of seasons, you know, they were able to stretch out what what they might have run over the course of three months over the course of a year instead, because people weren't really buying much except lots of tracksuit pants. And, and it really enabled uh, the industry to kind of get to the point where they could make the decisions that were better for their business, better for the customers and and better for, you know, the planet and being a more sustainable business. So, I think it's been really interesting to see that play out. And then now we're in this position where I think, you know, we're talking a lot about it being the roaring 20s and that after times like this, um, after times of, of instability, post war, et cetera, that you see, you know, fashion will suddenly, you know, really come to life and there will be so many fun party dresses and we'll go back to high heels and you know there'll be this explosion of fun and beauty again um and and I'm just kind of watching to see does it play out that way or are we nervous are the businesses too nervous to maybe produce all that when we don't really know yet what's happening or how long it will be before everybody's out and about in a real way and and when is when it sort of imports back to normal and and, so many questions are coming into play. So it's, it's been such an interesting way to see how fashion is responding and um, and is impacted by everything that's happened in the world over this past year.
0: I know, and that's right. And that's why I said I always look to fashion. You know, it's going to say, well, what's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen, fashion? Um, it, there's a couple of other things I wanted to talk to you about. Um, I, I, you know, you've got four children. And again, like I said, I was reading a little bit about you before this interview. And I said that I, that you, were, you, were, you were questioned, how do you deal with the morning rush? And you said, oh, the way I cope with the morning rush is not to be there for it, which I thought sounded fabulous. Do you think mothers take on too much?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's lots of research out there that says that we are, that women are working, you know, many more hours out of the house in the workforce, but also doing um, many more hours of, of childcare and housework than we've ever done before. And I'm really confused about where those hours have come from. Um I I think that we have these expectations that we put on ourselves to to be everything to everyone, and there's no way that that can ever be successful. There's no way that you can ever feel like you're getting it right in every facet of your life. And you know when I when I have to talk about how I get through my day or you know what what my life hacks are, whatever that is, I always thank God. I genuinely don't know it's one foot in front of the other and I hope that someone's going to step in and help me at some point. I have a wonderful husband who probably does more of, of his share of that side of things um, and I feel very lucky for that. I've got a, a mother who was able to help raise my children at a point where I was a single mother and at a point in my career where I was having to travel a lot and take on a lot and do a lot of hours. You know, I think they're the only, it, it, it's only that village that can really um, help you feel like you're holding it all together
0: Mm. Uh, and and one other thing is um so you've got this new book out do you want to tell me a little bit about that
1: yeah the book um it's called semi-gloss and um it's really you know it's not the book that I intended to write I had intended to write a book of pop culture essays but in keeping with um your question around are we taking on too much for some reason, um, I signed a publishing deal that had me delivering a manuscript the same week that I would be delivering my fourth child, and so um, I didn't write that book. I didn't actually write a book at all at that point. Um, and and the the book that I ended up writing, which is much more, I suppose, my my natural voice um, and the way that I write naturally, is is really the story of of me and my experiences. And um, it's just about, about growing up and growing older and having a career and trying to sort of have everything and a lot of the time getting it very, very wrong.
0: Mm. And, and you mentioned that, uh, and again, I was reading an article about you where you, where you wrote after turning 40, you, you realised you weren't living your truest life Um, And I want to explore what that was like and what it resulted in. And in particular, because you just mentioned voice, you know, you wrote an article where you were saying that your true voice ended up screaming at you constantly during this period. So what's that like when you get to a period and you think, well, actually, I'm not living the way I thought I would be?
1: Yeah, for me, it was a mixture of things. It was realising that I probably was spending a lot of time in a job that I wasn't particularly fulfilled with anymore. um, And that maybe wasn't giving me it wasn't serving me in the same way that I was serving it and also you know I was going through the breakdown of my marriage at the time Um, and and I think like many women you know I had a really good life I had I had a life where there was lots of laughter and fun and I had everything that I thought I wanted but there was this gnawing um, this gnawing little voice inside me that was telling me that something wasn't quite right and that this is not how I should be spending my time. And and I was really conscious of the fact that I turned forty and that I was halfway through and you only get one of them and I only had, you know, the next forty to to make it right and to to be exactly who I wanted to be, regardless of um people's expectations of me or of my expectations of myself and whether or not it made people comfortable and so I you know in those coming couple of years I made a lot of decisions I I, I left a marriage I remarried I had another baby I started a new career and um and I feel I think you know more comfortable and more myself and I give less shits than I ever have before
0: mm, well that's always a good place to get to Thank you, Justine. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was produced as ever by the excellent Alison Ho. If you enjoyed the episode, then make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast player and please leave us a rating. To hear more from us, visit womensagenda.com.au, And I'm really looking forward to hosting you at the next episode.
1: Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.